World Cup, World Cup. Every four years it's the World Cup, World Cup. If you don't pick up a grand in the build-up, then we'll love it when you score a goal. Ooh, did you see that? World Cup, World Cup. It might all end in tears or a headbutt. Head you can follow all the blogging on your laptop. laptop. From Slovenia to Slovakia, from Nigeria to the Côte d'Ivoire. Ah, Côte d'Ivoire. The Guardian and Observer, packed with World Cup coverage every day. The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Dennis. Today, the death was announced of the 300th British soldier to have been killed in Afghanistan. Well, it is desperately sad news. Uh, Another family with such grief and and pain and loss. And of course, the the 300th death is, is no more or less tragic than the 299 that came before. How successful has the NATO campaign in Afghanistan been? Also today, we look ahead to George Osborne's first budget tomorrow with our head of business, Dan Roberts. In many respects, it's been an incredibly well-trailed budget because the combination of you know recent election manifestos, then a coalition document, we almost know so much about what might be there and can't help but think we're being kind of softened up so that when it does arrive, we're perhaps a little bit relieved that not all of the nasties have arrived. <laughs> And there's analysis of two great sporting tournaments from tennis legend John McEnroe. To me, Serena, if she plays the way she can play, we win it almost every time. And the former Republic of Ireland manager, Mick McCarthy. They have to win. They have to win again. They have to qualify. Uh, apparently there was some sort of meeting and clearly, uh, well, that's, that can be helpful. First, our top story, the 300th British soldier to die in Afghanistan. He was a Royal Marine from 40 Commando, caught in an explosion while on patrol in the Sangin district of Helmand on the 12th of June. The Prime Minister, David Cameron, said it was a grim moment. Well, it is desperately sad news. Another family with such grief and and pain and loss. And, of course, the, the 300th death is is no more or less tragic than the 299 that came before but it is a moment i think for the whole country to reflect on the incredible service and sacrifice and dedication that our armed services give on our behalf the guardian's security editor is richard norton taylor well the military of course will say uh, 299 or 301 is the same as 300 of course they know it is a landmark for the, as far as public opinion concerned political opinion and indeed the media. And they also know that uh, the 300th death has come at an extraordinarily difficult time for the uh, campaign in Afghanistan where there's no clear evidence of any significant movement forward and progress. What has been achieved since 2001 when the US-led forces invaded Afghanistan? You know, nine years ago, 2001, the Americans sort of bombed Kabul and uh, they had the Northern Alliance, mainly consisting of non-Pashtu people, which were the tribe of the Taliban in the south. And then they all concentrated, the Americans and also the British, but especially the Americans, concentrated on, on, on Iraq for many years. And then the Taliban, in that period, between sort of 2002 really and 2007, the Taliban, having sort of fled, as it were, to the border areas of Pakistan, came back, not this time so much um, inspired or uh, certainly not led by al-Qaeda or bin Laden's people, but just... Uh, because they saw a gap there. And uh, Karzai's government in Kabul was very weak. The warlords, who had, some of them had been associated with the British and the Americans and NATO forces, were getting a lot of money, partly through the narcotics trade in the south. 
there was pretty good anarchy, really. There's no control from the centre. Kabul, the British um, sent in a lot of people, 3,000 plus, Tony Blair persuaded the British to go in in 2006. The Americans, of course, applauded that. The Americans still in Iraq in significant quantities, but Britain not. So Britain sort of led the new kind of surge, if you like, in Afghanistan, Helmand province, 2006. But that wasn't enough. There weren't enough British soldiers. And the Americans, you know, recently with their surge have realised that and they, and they come back in force into Helmand to help the British. As for the death toll, um, I mean, the US has lost many more service personnel, but how high is the rate of British deaths? Researchers say, including the Medical Research Council, the British Medical Research Council, say that there are twice as many or increase significantly more than the Americans per number of troops there. And the British, of course, have been, and the Americans indeed acknowledge that, uh, the British have been the most violent areas of Helmand. Helmand have been the most violent province of southern Afghanistan, the whole of Afghanistan. And places like Sangin, which is um, sort of central Helmand by the, by the river Helmand, the so-called green zone, as they call it, the fertile populated area. Sangin is where this 300th um, victim was wounded fatally, wounded last week, and, and, and uh, he died yesterday morning. And um, a lot of other British troops have been killed in Sangin, which is a very isolated area. And the British haven't got, either haven't got not many people on the ground or not enough. And there are very few Afghan local forces there. And that would make Sangin a kind of very vulnerable place, actually. And also it's a communications, has been traditionally a communications hub and a narcotics opium sort of factory for the Taliban. And, um, and it's a very difficult area. For, for the British. Richard Norton Taylor. And later in the podcast, we'll hear a musical tribute to Wooten Bassett. That's the town that honours the return of British service personnel killed abroad. Now, tomorrow's budget. It's George Osborne's first as Chancellor. He's expected to announce part of an £85 billion package of spending cuts and tax rises, slashing Britain's £180 billion a year welfare bill while protecting spending in education, defence and transport. He's expected to cut tax credits for wealthier families and raise capital gains tax and VAT. The Guardian's head of business, Dan Roberts, says there may be few surprises. In many respects, it's been an incredibly well-trailed budget because the combination of you know recent election manifestos, then a coalition document, then a whole series of pre-announcements, the Office of Budget Responsibility told us what the fiscal picture was the other week. Um, we've already had um, separate briefings on things like uh, the Hutt- John Hutton pension um, review, the um, uh, inquiry into what happens with city regulation. All these things have been pre-announced and there's been the leaks. There's been all the stories over the weekend about sort of big tax rises, big benefits cuts and public sector spending cuts, which they've already indicated. Uh, The only story really that would shock me this morning is something that said that something definitely wasn't in the budget. We almost know so much about what might be there and can't help but think we're being kind of softened up so that when it does arrive, we're perhaps a little bit relieved that not all of the nasties have (laughs) arrived. He, George Osborne, is uh, presenting this as uh, the unavoidable budget. Um, And yet, he does have choices, doesn't he? Yes, the choice is the one that we spent most of the election campaign um, debating, which was kind of how far and how fast. You know, no one is, uh, none of the parties are are arguing that something needs to be done. But the debate is very, very stark now between those who say the country can't, the public finances are so bad that we need to uh, get on with it very, very fast. Um, And those that say, actually, that's the the last thing you should do because that'll tip us back into recession and that we should um, delay things uh, or slow the pace of the cuts. 
Um, so yes, he does have choices, but he's being quite clear as to why he, um, uh, you know, in his view, is um, there's, a, there's also an ideological benefit that the, the state had got too big under Labour that, that it's time to sort of rebalance the economy. And yet uh, there'll be people in the Tory party who will be criticising George Osborne tomorrow. Yes, the dynamics of the coalition are going to be interesting here. You know, the Lib Dems are already out spinning, claiming that the budget will be a progressive one because there'll be lots of tax reforms in there that will uh, minimise some of the pain for the uh, poorer groups and um, uh, hit hit the rich. Um, uh, How much of that actually appears um, will tell us a lot about how much power the Lib Dems have within the coalition, but will also be the triggers that are likely to inflame the Tory right. Capital gains tax is a classic one, which the Tory right fears will hit savers and disincentivise entrepreneurs. Uh, It's very difficult. I mean, Danny Alexander, um, David Law's replacement at the Treasury, uh, is talking about cutting with care, uh, an expression which kind of made me wince, because, you know, whoever, wherever the axe is going to fall, it's going to hurt, isn't it? Well, yes, um, and um, we've already had some of what they would describe as low-hanging fruit. We've al- they, they've already tried to eliminate some of the wasteful spending, quote-unquote. Um, um, so uh, almost by definition, what is left is going to hurt. I think you can, you can though, uh, there are some tax rises that are much more regressive than others, regressive in the sense of hitting poor people disproportionately, um, VAT, uh, is one of those. How you spread the pain around is, as I think, the way in which we'll judge its fairness. And how can we judge whether the pain has been spread around fairly? I mean, would it just be in, in the, the number of regressive taxes? That are well, tax is one thing. I think if there's anything um, there to try and for me personally the most important thing i think will be some recognition that certain parts of the country are so dependent on the state both for public sector jobs and also welfare that if there's not if there's not some compensation given to them for the for the shrinkage in the welfare state um, i would take that as a very bad sign so for example the northeast wales northern ireland these are parts of the country where the economy is almost entirely dependent on the state in various forms there's no way you can shrink Um, the state without hurting them disproportionately how the government addresses that whether there is regional assistance whether there is sort of special uh, uh, changes to to the benefit system to try and address the very very poor uh, parts of the country um, I think that'll be crucial Dan Roberts and there's full coverage tomorrow at guardian.co.uk slash business my name's John Dennis you're listening to Guardian Daily Wimbledon fortnight began today and one of the most oft-quoted moments of previous tournaments was John McEnroe's you-cannot-be-serious anger at the umpire. Well, McEnroe, now a brilliant BBC commentator, told The Guardian's Tim Maybe what he remembered of the occasion. I remember having said it only this one time, so I'm amazed that Robinsons did this survey of the 10 most memorable moments in Wimbledon history and that, that hit number one, even more than my tie break with Borg or more than Federer breaking the record or Virginia Wade winning or Pat Cash winning and jumping and hugging his father. Uh, it was absolutely incredible that I even upset Cliff Richard when he was singing during a rain delay. So um, this is pretty funny because I just played in Liverpool yesterday, as a matter of fact, an exhibition up there. And I, I think that at least 10 people during the match yelled it. I do get the sense that people, especially here, but even all over the world, really relate to that sort of moment in time. And to me, it was amazing because it was early in the event in 1981, and um, it was really the only time I said it during my 15-year career. Now I'm ordered to say it every match I play. If I don't say it, I get fined. So um, 
it's pretty uh, it's pretty amazing that here we are sitting in 2010, and we're still talking about it. It's the individual against the system, isn't it, really? I suppose to some degree people relate to that, and uh, I certainly felt like that was the case when, when I was saying to try to stand up for my rights, and, and obviously a lot of people take it to mean different things, and that's sort of what's fun about it. It's like write, writing a great song. The person who wrote it might have meant it in a certain way, and it might have been innocent. I mean, I didn't. I just was happy that I said that instead of some curse word where they were throwing me off the court. So, you know, my father was a lawyer when I grew up, and he also managed me. So he'd say to me, listen, if you're going to get, I don't think you should get mad at the umpire. As he yelled at me, you don't have to get mad at the umpire. But he said, if you do, you should try to make sure that what you say is not to contain any expletives or four-letter words. He was absolutely right, because the most famous thing I ever said in my entire life is this phrase. And nice and clean, too. Very good. Now, let's look at this year's Wimbledon. Federer for the seventh time, you think? I'm going to give Nadal a slight edge uh, over Federer. Those would be my two picks, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that would love to see that uh, final again after the match they played two years ago. I just think he's a little hungrier, and he wasn't able to defend his title last year. He does have a tough draw, tougher draw, I believe, than than Roger does. But nonetheless, I'm going to have to stick with that uh, call right now. After that, Roddick, I mean, he played that incredible final last year. He would be my third choice, and... Andy would be my fourth choice. I think he's started the year really strong, and um, I think he was primed to win that first major. And then Federer just played as if he it was just another day at the park, like no pressure at all, and he just blew Andy's mind. And I think it's taken him uh, quite a long time to get over that, apparently. Or I don't know what's happened exactly, but he seems to have completely lost his way. It is a mental it, thing, isn't it? Well, it's definitely mental, and maybe partly partially physical i'm not that i'm not sure about but he doesn't something's gone off that i can't explain and he just doesn't have that confidence that he had nor does he seem to have that same intensity quite the same intensity that he needs to to win an event like this so that would make me concerned now however if things go his way uh and he gets a couple breaks along the way and he finds himself in uh semifinals maybe against nadal or maybe even someone else, if Nadal was upset, then all of a sudden you could say, hey, maybe this guy's actually got a better chance than we thought. But at the moment, it seems like uh, it would be uh, less likely than even last year. And what about the women's side? Is it as wide open as some people suggest, or is it Serena's? Well, to me, Serena, if she plays the way she can play, we're winning almost every time. I mean, she is absolutely amazingly confident. She's never out of a match. I mean, I've seen her win so many matches where she's been down match point. And she, she does have mental her. attitude, doesn't yeah, she? Yeah, she's the toughest player mentally I think I've ever seen. Um, but uh, and, and Venus obviously loves to play in this, and Hennings never won this. That's why she's coming back, and uh, it, after that, it's, it's more wide open. But um, listen, after what happened at the French, something unusual could happen more likely. But usually you usually see at least one Williams sisters in the final. One more little question about our quiet beginner, so to speak, Laura Robson. What do you think? Well, I like Laura. You know, I like the, I'm biased towards lefties. Uh, she seems like she's coming along nicely. Uh, actually, she's got a great opportunity because Yankovic's worst surface is this. And it's the first round, so both players, obviously, it's unpredictable, but uh, that's not... Then, of course, if she lost 6-3, 6-4, you'd say, well, that was a tough draw to play the four, number four in the world, so uh, we'll, we'll see. I'm looking forward to seeing how she's, how she's improved since last year. John McEnroe talking to Tim Maybe. Now more sport, the World Cup. 
It's been a traumatic few days for the England World Cup campaign. The draw with an unfancied Algeria side on Friday has been followed by press conferences, dissent in the squad, even rumours of impending managerial resignations should the team not progress. Well, joining us from South Africa to explain what's going wrong is the former Republic of Ireland manager and Guardian columnist Mick McCarthy. Mick, It seems like things are falling apart inside the England camp. You've had experience of dealing with the pressures of international tournaments. How will the England camp get back on an even keel? Oh, a very simple way. (laughs) Be win, be Slovenia on on, uh, on Wednesday. I know that's that's easier said than done. And I have to be honest, I am away in South Africa, so I'm not getting all the news of what's going on. And, you know, I'm kind of glad, actually. But the little bit of snippets I'm getting, they have to win. They, they have to win again. They have to qualify. Uh, apparently there was some sort of meeting and clearly, yeah, well, that's, that can be healthy. But uh, public disagreements aren't the best preparation for the game, are they? I haven't seen the public disagreements, John. Unfortunately, for, for you talking to me, I haven't. I've, I've been travelling to games and commenting on games. Well, it's, it's never nice when there's disagreements about the place, but... You know what? I work with footballers nine, ten months of the year, eleven months of the year, and I don't get on with everybody every single day of the week. But you have to get over, get on with them. It's like families. You don't get on with everybody all the time, do you? And (laughs) resolve any problems that you have, and get on with it, and and concentrate on winning the game because that's what people are here for. Everything. Do you think that uh, England will win on Wednesday? Yes, I do. Yes, I, I believe. If you look at all those players, they're all good professionals with their own clubs, respective clubs, all good players. Uh, and I would imagine their own personal pride, they'll all be hurting from not getting the results they expect. And uh, there's only one way to put it right, and then that's, uh, that's the win on Wednesday, and I, I think they will. And uh, looking at the tournament uh, in general, Mick, uh, what do you make of it so far? I think it's been great stuff. It started off pretty poor, didn't it? Uh, Boring, negative, people not wanting to get beat, but that's the norm. I reckon if you rewound for years, you'd find it was similar like the last time. Uh, set games when people need to get a result and they, they become more open, like carefree, uh, but a bit more open and start attacking. It's become better. There's been some great surprises, shocks. Uh, I was at a couple of them. I was at the Switzerland-Spain uh, game. And I love that. That was brilliant because the so-called having up tipped them to win Spain but the best team in the tournament apparently on paper come there and can't break a, a very tough, disciplined, organised Swiss team down who were terrific. Germany, Serbia. I mean, Germany, Germany should have won even with 10 men and it was by default completely that uh, Serbia won. This was the most outrageous decision to send... Uh, Closer off, but so it's been it's been great, and there are some real big important games still to be played because uh, you know people need points. So I've enjoyed the tournament. The atmosphere has been fantastic. Mick McCarthy, and don't forget to listen to the Guardian's daily World Cup podcast, published on the site every evening. Guardian.co.uk/slash/football. A musical tribute to the Wiltshire town of Wooton Bassett was played in public for the first time today. The piece was composed by Major Pete Curtis of the Royal Marines Band Service as a way of thanking the townspeople. The Guardian's Stephen Morris went along to have a listen.
Major Pete Curtis, Royal Marines, uh, Officer Commanding Hasler Company, Royal Marines. And you're the composer of this piece of music we've just heard. I am. Tell me about that bit, that excerpt we've heard. The snippet you've heard is just a 58 second blast of what is a five and a half minute piece, um, which can also be a three minute piece. They wanted a march, which they've got, and that was obviously the, a snippet from the introduction, the sort of first half of the march. But for concert use, there's also a middle bit put in to make it five plus minutes, um, that then makes the whole piece signify a day in Wootton Bassett on a repatriation. So you've got the hustle and bustle of the town with various military tunes representing the different regiments and the different services, tri-service that are there. Uh, as if to say, we're here now, we're arriving at Wootton Bassett for the event. Uh, that's followed by the C-17 aircraft going over musically. Um, How'd you do that? Um, using very low-end bass instruments as a distant rumble initially that gradually increases in volume and in dissonance, adding very close harmony that is actually normally out of tune, uh, deliberately so, to try and recreate the aircraft getting nearer, going overhead, and then fades away in, in reverse. Um, then I'm using snippets from Last Post, which is played as the as the fallen f removed from the aircraft um, some three miles away at RAF Lynham and so the distant sounds of something like Last Post is coming over the breeze um, then to represent the, the procession through the town obviously done in silence um, I've used uh, the Beethoven Funeral March as my inspiration using uh, the opening phrase from that in a more mournful less march-like way uh, more mournful and hymn-like to try and recreate this this passing of the cortege through Wootton Bassett. That then suddenly stops and we're back into a march again. Um, and there's a little snippet of, again, some more uh, military tunes. There's a piece called the Army Navy Air Force. I've used a little snippet of that. Then my own tunes interspersed with some of the Royal British Legion march. That takes us to the finish to represent that the services have gone now and the Royal British Legion are still left behind like they were because it was them that started this off. Well, I'm Brian Bevis. I'm the Vice Chairman of the British Legion Wooden Bassett Branch and I live in Wooden Bassett itself. The piece of music played today was absolutely fantastic, well presented and I thank the town for what they've done for us, and especially the Royal Marines, I think they've uh, really done this proud. What did you feel when you heard that music? Yeah, put a lump in the throat, always does, especially when you're marching music. Doesn't matter what it is, navy, air force, or army, you still bring the lump in your throat with a marching. Mary Champion, Mayor of Wooden Bassett. What do you think of the piece of music you've heard? We only heard a snippet of it, but it sounds beautiful at the moment. I'm looking you... forward to hearing it on Friday, the whole piece. How did it make you feel when you heard it? It makes you think of the repatriations, um, the hustle and bustle of the town, and then how very quickly it goes very sombre, and while they're waiting for the hearse to come up the hill and throughout the town.
Stephen Morris reporting. Guardian Daily was produced today by Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe. I'm John Dennis. Thank you for listening. <laughs>